From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Former detainees at the Aurora Immigration Facility say lax pandemic rules are to blame for a recent COVID outbreak. They're asking for you to have social distance, but how can you have social distance when you're in a cell locked down with three other people? A new film shares stories from inside. Then, pandemic infighting in Douglas County. Later, the Purplish team tracks the biggest bills moving and not moving at the state capitol. And we crack open a cookbook from the first Thai restaurant in the United States, which opened in Denver in the early 1960s. I've never made this recipe, and I haven't had it really since I was a little girl at Lily's restaurant. So hopefully it's a taste memory for me. Because of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms, with spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community. Many giving as Evergreen members, donating what feels affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. COVID-19 outbreaks have plagued the U.S. immigration facility in Aurora. A recent report found almost 100 of those detained now are infected with the virus. It's about one-fifth of the population there. A new film features first-hand accounts from people who experienced the pandemic inside. Raul Medina is featured. He's now a community organizer for the Colorado People's Alliance and advocates for other immigrants. Jeremy Flood directed the film. They speak with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Raul, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, We're talking about a privately run facility, and people are held there for a number of reasons, often to determine their immigration status, figure out whether they should be deported. Ro, you were in the facility for more than 11 months. You were born in Mexico. But in the film, you talk about growing up in the U.S. I have been in the United States since the age of five, almost six. So I've been here my entire life. I... I, um, I grew up here. This is, this is the only place I've known. Raul, I understand you were in the U.S. on what's called a conditional residency. You were waiting for a letter from immigration. How did you end up at the facility? Um, yeah, so I was, like, like you mentioned, uh, waiting for um, a, a letter from immigration to go to a court date to get a permanent resident status. Um, The letter was uh, sent to my mother's house where I had been receiving all my other immigration um, documents. And um, USPS sent the letter back saying that the the address was an invalid or undeliverable address. Um, Therefore, I did not get the letter and missed uh, the court date. And you went into the facility. You thought you'd clear the whole thing up quickly. But as we said, you ended up being there for 11 months. So you were there for the onset of COVID-19, which spread through the facility. You talk in the film about the room where you lived as just one example of how little was done to contain the virus. You have to think, you know, you have four people in this room. So you have bunk beds on each side of the room. 
and you have about two and a half, three steps in between. And then on this corner, you'd have like, it's like a little sitting area with like a metal table. So they're asking for you to have social distance, but how can you have social distance when you're in a cell like this, locked down with three other people? So you eventually got sick. What happened then? Um, you know, it was earlier on when we first started um, hearing about um, the Giora detention facility having um, an outbreak. And um, I, I was very involved while I was in there. I was doing laundry and kitchen work. Um, so I was exposed um, the majority of the time because we weren't given uh, proper PPE or, you know, gloves or any type of protection. And so I started feeling sick. Um, and shortly after, um, the majority of the people who I was in the dormitory with um, started feeling sick as well. They quarantined us and um, came in and checked our temperatures um, once a day to to see how we were doing. And that was the extent of that. And... Did you test positive for COVID? Um, we they weren't required to test yet. So when this happened pretty early on, um, we got the test about three months after that had happened to me. Mm-hmm. About two or three months, yeah, something like that. Geo is the private company that runs the facility. We reached out to them before this interview. They shared their thoughts in a statement, and we'll get to that in a bit. But First, Jeremy, I think it's important to say that you made this film as an outspoken critic of the Aurora facility. You weren't trying to offer all sides of the story. You've also been part of a protest movement with others who camped outside the center. What was the group's goal? Yes. So uh, the group that I was camping with is a group called Abolish ICE. Um, Their fundamental goal is to abolish private immigrant detention um, and to abolish um, ICE as a federal organization. Um, I think that this center is a, it's, it's a, it's a moral travesty. Um, You have people in there uh, for months and Geo Group is making money on every single person that's in that facility. Um, they have a contract with ICE um, that allows them to get you know billions and billions of profits to have people in there, um, which creates incentives to get as many people as possible and keep them in there even when conditions are unsafe. I want to point out that many of the detainees have come to the country unlawfully, and you made the film to tell a story about inhumane treatment there, but. You want to abolish ICE. How do you do that and still uphold U.S. laws? Well, I think it's important to take a step back and and recognize that U.S. laws were created in the way they were, um, not for the benefit and the justice uh, for the country, but for profitable corporations. Um, ICE was created in 2003. Um, They were never necessary before that. It's a very new organization. it's half as young as I am, right? Um, and the laws that were passed in 1996 um, created a system of mandatory detention. So if you were here, if you overstayed your visa and you got a speeding ticket, right? The law requires that you be taken to one of these detention facilities where everybody in there is not charged with a crime, but they are fundamentally prisons. They are in effect prisons um, where people undergo all sorts of of, you know, terrible abuses, uh, 
exposure to viruses, to pandemics, um, lack of medical care. People have died in this facility from lack of medical care. Um, so whatever you think about ICE or you think about the immigration system, I think any rational level-headed person can look at the system that exists now and say, this is wrong. This is not in the interest of the country. This is in the interest of a handful of very powerful people who make lots and lots of money on this organization of things. So as an alternative, you might monitor those folks a different way, maybe with an ankle bracelet, um, but not put them in detention. I mean, absolutely. I, you know, I, I have critiques of, of ankle bracelets, but every single one of these people um, could go about the immigration system from home. There's absolutely no reason to keep them in a dangerous situation, particularly in the middle of a pandemic, except for the fact that it is hugely profitable for these corporations to do so. And Raul, you talk in the film about being released from detention, feeling really scared. But when you were coming out, you saw supporters, people like Jeremy, who were living right outside in this encampment. I walked out here and saw the encampment. I saw the tents. I saw the people. And everybody was just so, so, so welcoming. I can't even explain it to you. And in that moment, I just knew that I was going to be okay. Jeremy, your film is about what it's like for detainees at the facility. It focuses a lot on the era of COVID-19. And most recently, there's been this influx about a, of, of about 100 people transferred there from the border who've tested positive. But looking over the course of the pandemic so far, how much responsibility does U.S. immigration and the company GEO bear for the spread of the virus at the center? Um, I, you know, one of the people we talked to in the film um, was a medical uh, specialist, associate professor of medicine at the University of Colorado, who said that the system that GEO set up, where you have lots of people crammed into tight spaces, and then they're being transferred all over the country to different facilities, she said it's the perfect design, as if you were trying to spread it, this is what you would do. Uh, you know, we are not only putting people in tight spaces where they can be exposed, not only are we sending them to different facilities uh, for different reasons, um, you know, we're also uh, deporting those people back to their countries uh, without proper testing. Uh, and so there, there was a report that came out over the summer that a large number of the people who tested positive um, in Guatemala were deported from the United States where they were exposed. Uh, the, the entire system has largely not faced this crisis with the care that it deserves. Um, and I think it's indicative of the fact that they see people as dollar signs and not as people. I want to point out, though, that it's clear from outbreaks in prisons and other places where groups of people are living together that it's really a challenge to control infections. Um, we reached out to GEO. They sent us a statement. It said from the beginning of the pandemic, the company has taken steps to mitigate the risks of COVID-19. We also spoke to ICE about the current COVID-19 outbreak at the facility. They told us they're isolating exposed detainees and providing medical care. What do you know about whether conditions have improved over time compared to what you experienced, Raul? Um, I am. So um, here at Colorado People's Alliance, we have a um, 
direct lifeline, it's a detention lifeline where we're in constant communication with people who are currently detained. Um, uh, and they call us for a number of reasons, right? But amongst these reasons, they call us to let us know exactly what's happening inside of the Geo Aurora detention facility. And um, the reports that we've gotten, like on the report that we, we released, the Geo report, have not been good, have not been, there, there hasn't been any changes, right? Um, you have uh, Geo making a statement saying that they've taken um, all the, the the measurements and precautions to to keep people safe, but you know before this outbreak for for these last like um, ten days for, for these transfers of almost three hundred people actually, um, and we have um, one hundred and seventeen people tested positive as of right now. We had um, you know. Um, a little over 197 people had tested positive in, in the four months or five months that they had uh, been required to report back to, to the fire chief. And so what kind of measurements are they taking when you have these kinds of numbers, when you have an outbreak of um, a little bit over 100 people in, within a week? Um, so I, nothing's changed, you know. Um, they 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 want to look good on paper, but in reality, what they're doing is is nothing now, during the pandemic, ICE has taken some steps to reduce the facility's population. Has this helped slow the spread of infection or did it? Um, no, I mean, the numbers were pretty consistent every week, you know, the numbers that they were reporting. And, of course, we were getting different information from the people who were detained, right, the people who were calling out, telling us that they had um, gotten tested, they were positive. And so we had uh, dormitories of 30 people calling saying, hey, you know, we've, we've all tested positive. So um, why, why, why are they saying only 10 people or 12 people are tested positive this week? So numbers have been pretty steady, um, even with the um, quote unquote measurements they took. Um, but yeah, I, it, it hasn't changed anything because um, they haven't been taking the precautions that they need to, that the, the CDC requires. And Jeremy, you made the film to tell a story about inhumane treatment at the facility, but how satisfied would you be if conditions there improve? Um, I, I mean, I think if conditions improved, that would absolutely be a net good, but ultimately at the end of the day, these facilities should not exist. Um, so, you know, any slight reforms that can be made uh, to prevents the ongoing suffering of people is definitely a good thing, uh, but it should not stop there. Um, we should create a system where we are treating human beings like human beings, uh, creating a humane immigration system, um, and not letting massive corporations decide um, huge parts of immigration law. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Raul Medina, community organizer with the Colorado People's Alliance. He was detained at the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Facility in Aurora. Medina appears in the new film from Jeremy Flood called The Facility, which is awaiting distribution. During the pandemic, one of Colorado's most populous counties threatened to create its own health department. In Douglas County, south of Denver, commissioners believed the health service they're a part of had overreached with its pandemic safety measures, and they wanted out. Since then, they've fired a board of health representative, a second is left, and now there's infighting among the commissioners themselves. Reporter Elliot Wensler of Colorado Community Media is back with an update on this public health saga. Hi, Elliot. Hey, Ryan. Okay, all three Douglas County commissioners are Republican, 
And to understand what's going on now, maybe it would be helpful to know how the board normally operates. Right. So while there have been a couple of two to one votes through this board, most of their decisions have been unanimous. In conversations with the media, they often speak with one voice and kind of in general, they seem to row together. That has not been the case recently. Here's George Teal, one of the commissioners from the April 27th meeting. Obviously, we've got a lot to work on as a board. You don't care about that. So you care, you, you care that we have a lot to work on? Mostly, you want us doing your work, though, not doing personal things here amongst ourselves. You want to stop the dumpster fires. We got to stop the dumpster fires. We got to do. Yes, if we can actually keep. Hey, well, we need to keep order. No, this is citizen comment is not right now. So that's from a meeting following some pretty harsh words that came from commissioners about each other. In those, there were allegations ranging from abuse of power to lying to the public to sexism. So far, we haven't really heard very many specifics about all of those uh, different claims. However, I mean, the term dumpster fire stands out. Jeez. Let's dig a little deeper into the issues here. In April, Laura Thomas was stripped of her chair title, and she believes her removal was a planned effort by the other two commissioners. What do we know there? Yeah, well, the whole situation actually started with a media request gone awry. It was a couple of weeks ago the board disagreed about which one of them should do an interview with the New York Times and about how their internal media policy spoke to that and what that meant in relation to that decision. Uh, Commissioner Thomas eventually went to the public with that issue and accused the other two commissioners of trying to silence her and calling them good old boys. Then the other two commissioners came back and said, that Thomas was lying about what happened and that she was actually attempting to influence the board by spreading false information. And of course, Thomas refutes that version of events. I also should note that there are a lot more details about this conflict uh, in our reporting. A bit of a tennis match, it sounds like. In April, the commissioners fired one of their health department representatives over a letter to the editor. What was in that letter to the editor? So the letter to the editor, which actually ran in our Douglas County papers in October, urged the community to speak out about the commissioner's then plan to leave Tri-County Health Department. It also encouraged them to use their vote in upcoming commissioner's elections to voice their opinion. So the person who penned this letter is actually the second Board of Health member from Douglas County who will need to be replaced. What do we know about the other? Right. So that letter to the editor I was just speaking about was actually signed by two of the Board of Health members from Douglas County. One of them was Marsha Jarek, who was fired. And then there's Paulette Joswick, who resigned from the position in February. Joswick's situation is a bit more complicated. Uh, She says she was approached by the county and urged to resign and that she ultimately did so, but it was actually for other reasons. The county says Joswick resigned after they contacted her about a complaint from a member of the public. No doubt at the heart of this, to some extent, is the tension between commissioners who wanted to leave Tri-County Health and uh, these folks who didn't think it was a wise choice that Douglas County should go it alone. As we mentioned uh, last July in a moment of of unity, commissioners sent a letter to Tri-County declaring their intention to withdraw Uh, They felt like pandemic restrictions were just too severe. They later backed off that decision. Remind us why. 
Well, one of the main reasons that they said they wanted to branch out on their own was because they felt they'd outgrown Tri-County Health Department and that they wanted more local control. Ultimately, they did reach a compromise with Tri-County, which allowed them to opt out of any public health orders in the future. And with that, they've said they will stay with the agency until at least the end of 2022, but they've also confirmed that they are looking at other public health options outside of Tri-County for the future. Speaking again to the tension there, and I understand Douglas County commissioners recently voted to opt out of a one-month extension of the state's COVID-19 dial. Right. And that's the dial that sets capacity and social distancing limits for businesses. Here's Commissioner Abe Layden from the board's April 13th meeting invoking a fable about the boy in the emperor's new clothes. Based on the facts that we have before us today, I want to have the courage of that young child and for Douglas County to be the first county in the state to say this pandemic is over. Thank you, Commissioner Layden. Commissioner Teal. What do you think that applause says about public perception and maybe exhaustion? Well, obviously, people everywhere have been eager to hear that phrase of this pandemic is over. And I think many people in that room and in Douglas County are relieved to hear that message, especially from their local leaders. Um, But on the other hand, there were some residents who spoke and voiced opinions on social media saying that they don't see this pandemic as over and they're actually worried about losing restrictions. How is the public reacting to all this infighting on the Douglas County Commission? Right. At that meeting, we definitely saw some side choosing, but we also saw folks who were just frustrated with all three commissioners and are worried that this fighting could impact the next election cycle and make the board vulnerable to being taken over by Democrats. They also just want to know kind of more details about these allegations that have been thrown out, and they want to understand what is really going on here, what's happening behind the scenes. Here's a public comment from the April 27th commissioners meeting. So either one of you are corrupt or two of you are dishonest or have extremely poor judgment. So which is it? Neither one is good. Neither one is good for the county, but one is true. So which one is it? So that comment was also met with some applause. And as a side note, that resident recommended expanding the board of commissioners from three to five members so that there can't be a situation where it appears that two commissioners are ganging up on the other. Hmm. What happens now with the board? So the board does agree on one thing, that this situation is embarrassing. Uh, They decided to wait at least 30 days to formally take the board chair title from Thomas and to see if they can work this out internally. During that time, they've agreed to rotate the chair position, and they've also voiced interest in bringing in an outside mediator to help them work through the conflict. Also, two of those seats were just filled by elections, and the third position will be up for re-election in 2022. So unless anything changes for at least the next year and a half, this same board will need to work together. Elliot, thanks for sharing this reporting with us. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Elliot Wensler is a reporter for Colorado Community Media, covering one of Colorado's most populous counties, Douglas County. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. Get caught up on the big developments at the state legislature with Purplish. I'm Ryan Warner here with CPR News and KRCC. Across the country, there are black officers and activists working to change a broken system. 
CPR's new series, Systemic, shares their stories in their voices. Man, it was a whole bunch of scared dudes behind a gun. With the uniform on, with the uniform. You can't roam the street without watching your back from the own law that's supposed to protect you. Look for Systemic from Colorado Public Radio on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, and everywhere you listen. Every session, state lawmakers start with big ideas on controversial topics. Then comes the actual lawmaking. The distance from A to B is the focus of the latest Purplish, CPR's politics podcast. Public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny explain what all the deal-making and drama mean for some of the biggest issues at the state capitol this year. Transportation, guns, and climate change. It is a certain time of year in Denver right now. Yep, flowers are blooming and it's really starting to feel like spring. Yeah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But it's also when you start hearing things like this at the Colorado State Capitol. We have reached uh, an agreement to offer a strike below amendment in committee tomorrow. No more U-turns, no more detours. This plan moves us boldly forward in the right direction. I've always said all options are on the table as long as we are achieving the goal for our constituents of lowering costs and increasing choice. And we So we're at the point in the annual legislative session where the biggest policies are being introduced and discussed and some of the ones in progress right now may be getting a little bit closer to their final form. Let's get right into it. You want to start with transportation? Sounds good. So first up, yeah, after months, some would say years, depending who you are, of waiting, we got finally a copy of all 197 pages of the state's big transportation bill for this year. So I called up Nate Miner the other day, our transportation reporter. Hi, Andy Kenny. <laughs> Nate Miner, hello. He and I have been following along with the development of this transportation package for months now, waiting for the actual bill the legislation to finally be introduced. We've been waiting, we've been poking, and it was always, uh, we're thinking next week sometime, and next week never happened until this week. So Democrats called everybody down to the legislature, to the Capitol for a press conference, the governor who talked about no more U-turns on this big transportation issue, and CDOT, environmentalists, a couple Republicans. It's a lot of people who don't always necessarily see eye to eye on transportation issues. But now they kind of had a deal. This is something that has been, you know, under construction <laughs> for for a long time. The state is, has tried to figure out transportation funding again and again and again and uh, just has not been able to pull off a, a new big system, really. Mm-hmm. And that's what this bill is. It's yes, it's new money. But more than that, it's a new system for funding transportation. Um, so that that's a pretty big deal. And, and you can sort of understand why um, you need all those people uh, up there to, to really push this through and also why it's taken so long. So, Andy, what is this big idea? What did lawmakers finally settle on that they want to try to pass this session? Yeah, Benta, what they finally settled on was close to what they were discussing earlier. It's about a $5 billion spending package, the largest amount of that going toward roads and highways, stuff like the infamous Floyd Hill on I-70 going up mm-hmm. into the foothills, repaving some of those neglected rural roads all across the state, really filling out CDOT's 10-year plan. Okay. Uh, but the plans also include stuff like bus lanes and stations on highways, and basically a lot of the other half of the money goes to local governments, and transit projects, and really quite a lot of money comparatively for electric vehicles. 
So Nate had said it's it's not just the fact that there's billions of dollars going into the transportation system, but that this proposal creates a new system for funding transportation. Uh So what is the new system? Indeed. Well, like every other major piece of legislation, it seems like it's going to be funded by fees. And that's what this bill is full of. We've got fees on gasoline sales, on on diesel sales, um, on uh, a ride in an Uber, on food delivery, on Amazon packages. Um, So pretty much everything under the sun that uses the transportation system, there's going to be some sort of new fee on it. And beyond that, you know, they're, they're pretty small to start out with but they'll go up over time automatically. I mean, one thing I've been hearing from people opposed to this is it's a, quote, fee, but they see it as a tax increase that, first off, voters should be approving, Mm -hmm. and that these fees are going to negatively impact lower-income Coloradans and that this is not the right approach at all to take for this. Yeah, we've discussed that on the show before, but like fees are what they're leaning on Democratic lawmakers to get around the fact that voters never, almost never approve new taxes. And yeah, uh, a lot of times they do have a regressive effect. So that's one area where I think we could see backlash. You know, maybe we'll see uh, ballot initiatives introduced to fight back against these kind of raising fees. But Democrats will tell you like this is the only way to meet the needs that are widely agreed upon. It's not just conservatives that oppose this package, right? Yeah, I don't know about opposition from the left, but there's definitely been skepticism and criticism about the fact that it's very road and highway centric. It's Mm. not the package that's going to build a giant new transit system. Maybe that'll come later with some of the stimulus dollars, but this is really focused on fortifying and, you know, to some extent, revising the current system of roads and highways. Right after the horrific attack in the Boulder King Supers, we did an episode on what we should expect next in terms of laws. And at the time, some lawmakers from Boulder were talking about introducing an assault weapons ban at the state level. Right. Almost immediately after the mass shooting, we saw Democrats, some prominent Democrats, including the Senate Majority Leader who represents that district in Boulder, Mm -hmm. saying they wanted to do a statewide assault style weapons ban. Where is that now? It didn't gain a lot of traction almost immediately. First off, you had some more moderate Democrats who were not supportive of that, never were going to be, felt like it violated constitutional rights. Still, you can lose a few Democratic votes at the Capitol just because they have a pretty healthy majority. But the idea got squashed pretty quickly after Democratic Representative Tom Sullivan weighed in. He is one of the leading advocates in the state for stricter gun policies. His son Alex was killed in the Aurora Theater shooting. This is one of the issues that prompted Sullivan to run for elected office. He's sponsoring legislation this session and has done so before. Firstly, he wanted it to be at the federal level if there's going to be a ban. And then also he said it would be the wrong approach because it could derail all the other legislation on gun policies that lawmakers wanted to push forward this session. He said that even though it's, it's there's not going to be a statewide ban on anything, he still feels like this legislative session may end up being the most transformative legislature Colorado's ever seen relating to gun violence and maybe the most transformative in the country. So don't let anyone tell you that what we're doing here today isn't bold and transformational change. The conversation around how to curb the gun violence epidemic in Colorado is no longer going on in basements and living rooms. It's happening right here on the floor of the House and the Senate. 
So what, what are they looking at? What are they pursuing? Yes. So we have three proposals, three bills that are beginning the legislative process, if you will. One would allow local governments to pass stricter gun laws than the state. So Boulder actually had passed a local assault-style weapons ban. And shortly before the mass shooting, a judge had ruled that that ban was illegal because it was stricter than the state. So this bill would allow cities to pass those bans, and we expect Boulder to reinstate that ban again. Okay, so that's the first bill. What else are they looking at? Another bill would add violent misdemeanors to the types of crimes that would prevent someone from purchasing a gun. So in this case, it will be temporary. It will be for five years, not a lifetime. But um, some of these violent misdemeanors could be things like domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse, hate crime, cruelty to animals. And that bill would also do away with a policy that requires a gun shop to sell someone a gun, even if the background check isn't complete. So if it's not complete after three days, someone can purchase the firearm. I've heard from opponents saying gun stores don't even do this, but it's called nationally closing the Charleston loophole. Okay, so it sounds like that package would try to get guns out of the hands of more people who have recently been through the criminal justice system and would also try to make sure there's not a loophole that people can use with the background check process. Mm-hmm. With the opposition to that, you know, if they're saying that that doesn't already happen at gun stores, why are they worried about eliminating it? I think opponents would say that all of these proposals are chipping away at the Second Amendment. And they feel these bills are, you know, are either going to be ineffective, unnecessary, unconstitutional, or all of the above. Keep in mind, Democrats had passed two other gun policies before the mass shooting in Boulder. One requires people to report lost and stolen firearms. The other requires people to safely store their firearms. Gotcha. Well, like you mentioned, we're running into some of the really eternal divides, it seems like, on this issue, the same arguments. The third bill in this package, I understand, might address some of those ideas of what's actually effective or not. It would, I understand, create an Office of Gun Violence Prevention. What is that about? Yep. This office would be housed in the Department of Public Health and Environment. And supporters say the goal here is really to get better data on gun violence, what's causing it, what could prevent it, so they can craft better policies in the future. Most gun deaths in Colorado are overwhelmingly due to suicides. This office would do research, get out into local communities, basically trying to see what's effective. Those kinds of bills are always interesting to me because I think it can be easy for some people to dismiss these kind of more idea-based bills Mm -hmm. because they don't immediately do much of anything. They don't create a brand new policy right away. But it does introduce an idea that guns are a public health problem. Yeah, I think that's interesting. A lot of times when lawmakers reach this impasse, it's like, we're going to turn it into a study or we're going to create a commission. But supporters of this don't see that this fits into that category. They really feel like it will provide this data to move things forward on this policy issue. And opponents feel like the concept of an Office of Gun Violence Prevention is problematic because it casts guns as the focus. Instead of looking at violence as a whole or focusing on mental health, you know, it's just specifically firearms. Well, let's finish up with the climate 
which interestingly enough is actually the place where Democrats are running into some really significant disagreement. And that's why we've brought back our climate reporter, Sam Brash. Thanks for being here. Of course. So we really want to hear more about the bill that Governor Jared Polis is threatening to veto. Okay, so this is a SB 200. Uh, This is a bill that has been the project for a huge coalition of environmental groups. It's being carried now by uh, Senator Faith Winter and Mm -hmm. Representative Dominique Jackson. And what it's really trying to do is hold Polis to his commitments on climate change. This has come out in a few forms. There was a bill he signed in 2019, which scheduled some huge greenhouse gas reductions in Colorado. Mm -hmm. The notable goal, 50% by 2030, we got to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Environmental groups and a lot of lawmakers feel like Polis has signed that bill and basically shrugged on the enforcement, not really done much, not really passed real rules or regulations or come up with a plans. And so they're proposing a bill that they think would really make it clear to the governor exactly how he has to go about enforcing Colorado's climate goals. I guess this whole issue that you've covered seems a little bit puzzling to me just because Polis ran on the issue of climate. He has a green reputation. And like you said, he passed these proposals. So he agrees with the end goal. It just doesn't seem like something naturally that he'd be butting heads with other Democrats on. Well, I think you got to like peel back the layers of what Polis has actually said on climate change, right? Remember, when he was running for governor, he wasn't talking about deep emissions reductions. He was talking about 100% renewable energy by 2040, mm-hmm. which maybe seems like a distinction without a difference. But this is something utilities really want to do anyway, because renewable yeah. energy is uh, getting so cheap. Hmm. Where Polis seems less interested is figuring out how to actually regulate industries to reduce their emissions. And and that goes obviously beyond the utility sector. Because the utility sector is kind of the easy part, right? Yeah, the utility sector is totally, they're, they're, they're working with Polis on this stuff. They're doing it voluntarily. And it should be noted that they have been pretty ambitious. Excel, Black Hills, Tri-State, they've all come out with really ambitious greenhouse gas reduction plans. Mm-hmm. And they haven't always been compelled by the law to do that. Where it gets harder is how do you make concrete? How do you get people to drive different cars? Mm-hmm. What about building? people in their offices Mm -hmm. and how they heat their homes. I mean, these are huge projects. And these progressive lawmakers say, you can't just imagine that we're going to somehow get there on our own through what's happening just in the private sector. We need real regulations. Polis is saying, okay, maybe we need some regulations, but I want to be able to do that sort of on terms that could change over time. I want small separate bills to do that sector by sector in a pretty targeted way. Mm -hmm. I don't want to figure out one big rulemaking to do it all at once. CPR climate reporter Sam Brash joining public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny for the latest Purplish. It's the politics podcast from CPR News. Hear the whole thing via Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be right back with the antidote to claims that Denver's been a meat-and-potatoes cow town. This is Colorado Matters from CBR News. A family intervention is a desperate effort to save someone who's in the throes of addiction. And it doesn't always work, even when your family name is Biden. I just said, screw this. And my dad ran after me and just started to cry. I said, okay, Dad, I'm going to go get help. I'll do it tonight. And I had no intention whatsoever to do what I just told them. 
How Hunter Biden found his way out of crack addiction on the season finale of Back From Broken, wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A very special dish is almost ready. A Thai dish, noodles with crab curry. I'm putting a little chopped parsley on the crab soba. And then I'm garnishing it with a sliced hard-boiled egg. The cook is Holly Arnold Kinney. We're at her home in Denver, where she has a veritable library of vintage cookbooks. This recipe she's making, it comes from a book we just had to highlight in our series, The Kitchen Shelf. Well, this, I've never made this recipe, and I haven't had it really since I was a little girl at Lily's Restaurant. So hopefully it's a taste memory for me. Lily's Restaurant. She's referring to the late Lily Chitavej, who opened what's widely recognized as the first Thai restaurant in the United States, in Denver, in the early 1960s. Chata Thai. Mmm. <laughs> I used fresh Dungeness crab, and I handpicked it out for you, Ryan. That's what makes it really good. You can use canned crab, but I like the fresh, and the, Lily always used fresh crab. It has bean sprouts that are crunchy. Okay, I'm excited to try. I gave you the first taste, and I want to make sure I get a little egg with my first bite. Mmm. That crab is so wonderfully rich. I see what you mean about using the real stuff. (laughs) The curry sauce in this is a mung bean uh, you boil mung beans till they're soft, and then you puree them with coconut milk. Our host, Holly Arnold Kinney, was a foodie before the term even existed. She owns the Fort Restaurant in Morrison, which specializes in foods of the Old West. Her parents started it, and right around that time, the early 60s, Lily Chittavedge was opening Chata Thai. You'd walk in the restaurant, and she'd have all these amazing decorations and costumes of Thai dancers hanging on the wall, decorating her restaurant. And I was fascinated with the brass long fingernails that the Thai dancers used to put on their hands to accentuate their hand movements, and the crown of jewels that they would wear when they dance. But Lily would always come out. She was very short in stature. She was about four feet five, but she was tough. Governor Lamb used to go there, and she'd always give her political opinions to him and what we should or shouldn't do and what they need to do in Thailand. And she was very outspoken and said, you need some baby garlic or you need some pickled garlic or more chili. And so my father loved her. Holly's late father, Sam Arnold, is a culinary legend. He taught cooking classes with James Beard in China, knew Julia Child and corresponded with her, had a PBS series called Frying Pans West, and the Arnolds were close to Lily and her family. So she had strong opinions about cuisine and strong opinions for former Democratic Governor Dick Lamb about politics. Absolutely. She was very political. And as for Lily Chittavedge's cookbook, it includes recipes like Thai chicken salad, pad thai, and these noodles with crab curry, which calls for spaghetti. Holly's using fettuccine. Fettuccine, that's surprising. Well, at the Chata Thai in the 1960s, they didn't have many choices of Thai noodles. 
And Lily felt spaghetti was a good noodle from the Italian communities here. And it was familiar to many Americans. So she always used spaghetti or linguine in her recipes. This notion that Denver was home to the first Thai restaurant in the U.S. flies in the face of a common perception of Denver, that this is or was a cow town, a meat and potatoes place. Holly Arnold Kinney balks at that. Absolutely. Uh, My father belonged to the International House, which had a large Filipino population, and we'd have them over at our house all the time. They would cook foods from their homeland. We are a city of immigrants. We had a huge uh, group of Japanese, Chinese, Thai. Lily's husband was stationed in the military near Fort Simmons. So she thought, well, I'm going to open a restaurant with Thai food. And she brought her own home recipes, but adapted them to what ingredients she had here. But she loved the fresh vegetables we had here. And so one of the side dishes of this crab curry I'm going to have you taste is a simple flour egg batter with eggplant and zucchini and fried in oil. But you need to have the oil hot so it doesn't soak up the oil. It crisps it Mm -hmm. and cooks the vegetable. The veggies turn out eggy and delightfully al dente, but it's a wonder we're able to enjoy these dishes at all. You see, something happened to Holly's treasured copy of Lily's cookbook. I don't know if you want to record this. (laughs) Well, why not? Okay, so I get Lily's cookbook out of my library, which we have a 3,000-volume rare cookbook in Western History Library, and... I brought it up to my counter in my kitchen. I put it in the middle, and so I had it out with the recipe I was going to make, and I had all the ingredients, but I was missing the crab and the mung beans. So I left yesterday to go to the store to buy the crab, and I came back an hour later, and my dog, Frenchie, she had gotten up on the counter, got the cookbook, and ate half of the book. And I came home, and the book is, is just torn to pieces. I was just, it felt like my father had died all over again. It was such a grieving moment for me. And I was reading all the stories that Lily had of my father in her cookbook uh, before I went to the store. So then I go outside and walked by my neighbor, and I told her how upset I was that the dog ate Lily's cookbook. She said, you know, I have a copy of that book at home. I'll get, it's a Xerox copy. So she brought over the cookbook on Xerox. So I now have at least a full Xerox copy of it. But what it tells me is probably many of your listeners who happen to be from Denver probably have that cookbook in their library. Saved by a photocopy, which allowed us to cook from Lily's cookbook, recipes from the first Thai restaurant in the U.S., which opened in Denver in the early 1960s. Find the recipes for noodles with crab curry and those battered vegetables at CPR.org. And a happy note to end on, certainly happier than a shredded family treasure, is that Shada Thai remains in business today. They've survived the pandemic by doing takeout. Finally today, Rachel Bayman has been in love with Colorado since she was in summer camp. 
the Nashville singer-songwriter went to Rocky Mountain Fiddle Camp in Divide, Colorado. It's where she honed her musical craft, learning fiddle, then banjo, then guitar. That experience comes full circle when she returns to camp this summer as a teacher. She also has some tour dates scheduled and a forthcoming album. For a musician who was out of work this past year, it has all given Bayman a shot of optimism and just a little trepidation. It feels like a little whiplash. Like, I feel like I've forgotten how I kind of juggled everything. So it's not necessarily what's happening that makes you feel so unsettled. It's just all the change, whether it's change for the good, change for the bad, change in general is just hard to navigate. So trying to get used to that. One change came last summer when Bayman's younger sister, Becca, decided to relocate to Colorado and pursue a Ph.D. at CU Boulder. The two had grown close living together in Nashville. Rachel deals with Becca's move in her new song, When You Bloom. I wrote this song kind of trying to convince her not to move, actually, because I was sort of saying, like, let's do life together. I don't want to miss those really important chapters. And she's my little sister. And I was like, I want to be there for them. Now we're going that imagining that drive between Nashville and Colorado and everything that you think about and reflect on in in your relationships during those long road trips. You know, I'm really happy for it and I think it is the place for her. Nashville folk artist Rachel Bayman. Her new album, Cycles, is out June 11th. She'll teach later this summer at the Rocky Mountain Fiddle Camp. And this weekend, she appears at Luther Strings, a family-run instrument shop in Denver, for a COVID-conscious show that's free. And that's our show for today, with thanks to the Colorado Matters family. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Mortar. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.